This is Emma Clark. I'm here for the Our Streets, Our Stories project. We are at the Brooklyn Public Library Central Branch. It is April 22nd, 2016, and I am interviewing my boss, Brenda Bent Peters. Thanks for sitting down with us, Brenda. Thank you. So I'm going to start by asking you, where were you born? Well, I was born in London, England, and well, it's a long way from, from here now, right? Isn't it? But um, I guess we, so we're not going through this. Okay. So long story short, yes, born in England, and then I grew up in South Guyana, South America. Uh, from there, I went back to England, and while I was in college, you get the, in, you, the itch that you needed to be somewhere else. <laughs> And America just seemed like a great place at the time. Said, you know, the grass was greener on the other side. Hey, let's go over and, and see what it's like there. So my mom lived here. So I was, I came over with um, after, after my mom sponsored me. So um, I've been here since 1987. And so how long had your mom been here before that? Before that, my mom was probably. I think she. Came, she came in 1980. Mm -hmm. Do you know why she moved to Brooklyn? Well, at the time, I had a aunt that was ill, and she came over to kind of assist her. And through that, she ended up leaving my dad and a teenage me, which is not really the right time to leave a teenage girl <laughs> alone, but. Um, we managed through some, you know, some teenage angst and everything, but, um, I still think I came out good. And so, um, yeah, she was over here and then she sponsored us and brought us over here and, um, I started college here mm -hmm. and it was, you know, it was kind of a weird adjustment at first because well of course you know uh you're homesick and everything else but at the same time i felt like i was the novelty to everybody else you know it's one of those things you come over and and you sound different from everyone and so when you're talking to someone they're going like oh wow are you from england say something for me and this is after you just said a whole epistle of something and and it was kind of crazy and but you know we you know i had that solid family background with my had a quite a lot of other you know ex extensive family cousins and stuff here um so that kind of helped me adjust um the the biggest adjustment was when I first got here, my parents really were at that point where they really weren't getting along and knew at some point they were going to separate. So my mom told me that since your dad's not going to be around, you're going to have to find a way to, um, f you know, to finance your own education now. Now, coming from a middle-class family where I, everything was practically given to me, I'm the only child for my mother, and um, and so I grew up an only child, even though I have older siblings on my father's side. I it it was kind of 
a real adjustment that, oh, I have to work and go to school. It didn't mean I didn't work before, but I worked because it was my, all my friends were doing it and it was and it was like a hobby more or less. And and I get to take home money every week. But now I have to earn money for an actual purpose. And, and that kind of um, really <laughs> was a big adjustment there. So it just so happened, I think the same day we had this conversation, my mother had a friend who was an army recruiter. So <laughs> he started to tell me all the wonderful things that we could do about, you know, that we could do, uh, I could do, and also get money to go to school. And I just saw, so everything he mentioned just sounded great. And all I saw was the dollar signs and all the traveling. And I thought, this is the life. Yeah, I could do this. I could, I could manage army life. He had totally disillusioned about how things are. So I ended up joining the army and I was in there for two and a half years out of a six year stint. But that's another, that's another sto a story for another time anyway. <laughs> no, I mean, I want to hear a little bit about it. First, I want to ask you a little bit about Growing up between um, England and Guyana, mm -hmm. what, what was it like to have that sort of split childhood? And do you have any quick memories of, of those times, what the differences were like? Because you lived in some very distinct areas growing up. Uh, well, it's a funny story. Uh, you know, the thing is, my family is very mixed. And um, my father's family is, um, well, I should say my great-grandmother was African, but my great-grandfather was a Syrian Jew. And, um, and so my, grand, my grandfather, my great-uncle, I should say, yeah, if I got that right, when they were growing up, they, they weren't as dark as I am, of course, but at the same time, they they weren't think, very they were they weren't dark but you know they still looked African in a way, so the other side of the family the fairer side of the family actually would let them stay there you know during the holidays and stuff like that and they welcomed them well, but anytime guests came over, they would take them and put them in a the chicken coop, and I was probably about. Mm, probably about four or five hearing these stories. They wasn't really told to me, but as a child, you're there and you're hearing these things. And then I was going to all-white school in London and would go to school and say, I hate white people <laughs> because they, and the teachers were kind of concerned about that, but why was I coming out with this stuff? My parents didn't know where it was coming from until afterwards then they found out when I start saying yeah because they put you in chicken coops <laughs> so um, my father knew he wanted because my parents are from Guyana so my father knew he he wanted to go back home and give back and so I think he thought this was like the best opportune time um, before he got himself in trouble too <laughs> for my for my radical <laughs> speeches so um 
he, so ab- around that time he we moved and he still, he was a um, technical engineer where he was teaching telecommunications. So he left British Telecom to go and work for Guyana Telecommunications. And so he would do, um, he, he would teach around the, not just in Guyana, but around the world. He would go and do um, conferences in other, India and Turkey and everywhere else. So we end up moving to Guyana. So now it's a total different thing from being in an all-white neighborhood, growing up in an all-white neighborhood to having more people that look like you. But, you know, when you're a child, those things are really, you don't really notice those things anyway. So it really wasn't a big adjustment in that sense. It was just that, that one moment I had where I realized there was a difference. But by the time I moved to Guyana, I, yeah, I realized people were different. But it really didn't make, a, you know, it really didn't phase me in that sense. Was there a culture shock moving to Brooklyn at all? Brooklyn, yes. The very first time I came to Brooklyn, I came on, I came on vacation. And um, the only thing I knew, you know, you see stuff on in movies and stuff, and you expect. And I came over right around that time. This is like in the early 80s, I think. And when you had graffiti on the subway trains and stuff like that and you expect that when you get on there you, that you might get held up and all that kind of stuff so I was expecting a lot of that to be happening but the best memory I have about coming to Brooklyn was um, I came over and um, oh gosh what's his name there was this song that came out it was like a big summer thing um the show, um, oh gosh, what's his name? Human Beatbox. I can't, oh gosh, I can't remember. Dougie Fresh came out with this, the show. And you're walking down the street and everybody had the big boom boxes. But the weirdest thing was that I really thought it was like in a TV show or something, like Fame or something, because soon as that song came on, everybody would stop what they were doing and they started dancing. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, is this what, everybody's like this in America. <laughs> and so I would just look out for every time that song would start to see what everybody would do. <laughs> so that was one of the fun times when I came, then I first came over. But, um, so you you know you get this whole idea in your head that you know that people are so you know uh, happy go lucky and stuff like that and it, and I th- the, and another adjustment was the food everything tasted horrible when I first got here <laughs> I know everybody says English food is bland but here everything tasted like sugar mm-hmm. and. It took me a while to even get used to it. I I think I was eating oatmeal practically every day until I got used to some of the stuff. And then then what you guys call breakfast food from what we call breakfast food, you know, Danishes and stuff like that, that wasn't breakfast food. Or having your 
savories and sweets together, like bacon with pancakes and syrup. Always unheard of. <laughs> so, but, um, you know, you live here long enough, you start to get used to that. Mm -hmm. And what college did you go to when you moved? I, I went to, initially, I went to Begrevis, and then I spent one semester there, and then I went to Brooklyn College, because I, I actually wanted to go to Brooklyn College. My mother wanted to send me to some, uh, like a parochial college or something like that, because I grew up <laughs> in all these convent schools and stuff like that. I had to have St. Agnes, St. Rose's, St. Joseph's. So she, I think she was thinking of sending me to St. Francis, and I, that was part of the rebellion thing too. I'm like, well, if I have to pay to go to college, I get to choose where I go. Well, you know, the thing is, I didn't know much about, you know, the other schools like Columbia and Harvard. I knew about Harvard and stuff like that, but of course, but I, I didn't know how you go about to get into those like, schools at the time. And it's not like I would just say, yeah, I've got to get into Harvard next week. So, um, since I'm living in Brooklyn and I thought, oh, and I saw the campus, I'm like, yeah, I, I could see myself going to that school. Yeah, I want to go to Brooklyn College. So that's how I ended up at Brooklyn College. Mm -hmm. And so your time in the Army, um, do you have any distinct memories from basic training or what the first sort of immersion into that world was like? Oh, <laughs> basic training, that was a wake-up call because... As I said, you know, I had one of those um, recruiters that just told you whatever you wanted to hear just to get you to sign on the line. And um, the thing is, I personally knew I, I didn't like hospitals. I didn't like anything medical. However, the scores that I made I, were so high and they had this need for more medical staff. They kind of told me that I had no choice but you're going to be a medical supply specialist in in a in a field in a station hospital at the time and um so i went along with it so I, and a medical supply specialist is like a pharmacist so you, you go through basic training and then you go through advanced individual training which they teach you the skills of being whatever your field is so, um, but basic training, <laughs> I, um, the very first day of basic training, I, I really thought this is going to be a breeze. You got, we, we got there and they were ever so nice to us. You, you see all those stories on television where they're screaming at you from the time you get off the thing. It was nothing like that. They were ever so nice and polite and everything. You go to the, to the um, cafeteria, you're getting like these huge barbecue ribs and stuff, things like, you know, I was in Alabama at the time, so you got, had a lot of Southern food, a lot of stuff. I didn't even know what it was at the time. <laughs> um, so, and that lasted two days and then the real the real thing came when we started getting uniforms and everything and the guys got their haircuts and and we all got our shots and everything then the real stuff came in and i said well i was pretty athletic so that didn't really bother me so much i just didn't and i grew up with 
quite a lot of discipline from nuns and stuff. So that did bother me. But I just thought there was a new, should be a better approach than somebody yelling at me to tell me, to give me instructions. And so, um, and then to make it worse, there's still that cultural thing because a lot of times they told me stuff that I just didn't understand and they just didn't understand why I didn't understand it. I'm like, we don't, you know, things like pocketbook. I didn't know a pocketbook is a handbag, you know. So when you tell me certain things, I'm like, Huh? <laughs> <laughs> so they they had fun with me and I think they used to use me as an example just to just to um to make an example for everybody else because they knew that they could just get get over on me. And it was so bad that I used to find myself calling my recruiter every day. <laughs> like, what the hell you got me into <laughs> until he decided to stop taking my calls. <laughs> So I would have my mother call him instead until he start start stop taking her calls. So, um, but I made it through. You know, after you know, it was just a, again, it's just something after a while that you just need to get adjusted to. And then after Alabama, I went to Texas, San Antonio, Texas, and things were better by then. You know, and. Um, Although the thing is, it was during the Cold War time, so there was no, none of this, none of this other stuff going on, no Gulf War or anything like that. So things were pretty quiet. So we, we weren't really doing much, you know, practically just doing the run-of-the-mill stuff during the day, and then partying all night. So um, that was it until. Um, this whole threat with Saddam Hussein started and we started hearing that um, Bush was going to deploy the military and we're like, huh? <laughs> What's going on here? Now, I was in, this, I was in a situation where I felt I needed to know more about what I'm getting myself into because I knew I just joined just to get money for college and that was it. So I didn't, you know, so now I'm in this situation where I'm going to actually have to fight a real war. And, um, but the good thing about it is that I really wasn't as worried, but I was concerned about others because my unit was so dysfunctional. You know, but you know, it was like F troop that I'd never thought they would send us anywhere anyway. Nobody would want to send that group anywhere. But what happened, I don't don't know if it's because I started questioning stuff like, you know, why are we so worried about Saddam, blah blah blah, stuff like that. And I started that I got Hello. taken out from my unit. So now I got taken out from F Troop to go with another unit so that I could get deployed. And it, so now like, why did I get individualized? Um, why did I get um, separated from everybody else? And I couldn't figure out what was going on. Their excuse was that I was up for promotion. But I was at a, a point where I couldn't move from 
I had moved up the ranks from private to specialist, which is like a corporal. And I couldn't get to sergeant for a, quite a few more years, but I was promotable. So the only way I could get the promotion faster was to do, um, to do active duty time overseas. So this was their way of, this is their idea of um, getting me to get promoted to sergeant. <coughs> so they sent me to this redneck unit in Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and so it took, you know, there nobody was doing anything again. All we were doing was get up in the morning, have breakfast, go back to sleep, get up for lunch, go back to sleep, then get go out for dinner, and after dinner you take your shower and stuff, and you end up at the at the e-club or the thing, which is like like a bar, you know, like a social a social bar. So that's all we did every day. A few days in between, we actually did some work, and. Um, so I had too much time on my hands, start reading, saying, well, I need to find out more about stuff. So I started reading up all these army regulations and stuff and, and started to notice certain things that, oh, well, I could actually, because as much, I won't say I, I wasn't excited enough to go see some action overseas. Yeah. Um, I'm thrilled, you know, I love thrills like that where I would love to do that, but at the same time, I didn't want to have to do it on somebody else's agenda. I really needed to understand why, what's so seriously bad about this, this dictator, and why does, why did we have to intervene? You know, these things have been going on for years. You had... Um, Gaddafi and everything, everybody else, and no, you never really bothered to do anything about it. Now this, now all of a sudden, we're threatened, and I really didn't understand. So, um, but I ended up um, applying for conscientious objection because, as much as I knew the the severity of the situation, I didn't want to be involved in the death of anybody, whether enemy or not, you know, the thing is, they didn't do anything to me. And as much as you say, well, you, they, they hold a threat to your country, I didn't, under, I didn't see the threat to the country. So why, why am I going to take somebody's life for something I don't understand? So I registered for conscientious objection. It wasn't taken to, to, um, well, and um, so after being there for months and nothing was happening, I decided just go AWOL. My mother came to visit me and I went to the train station to meet her and I just told her, get back on the train, we're going back to New York. And I left all my stuff and I left and went back to New York. But I realized afterwards that I didn't like the idea of being a fugitive even. <laughs> so I again I know after 30 days I could get penalized 
heavily. So on my 30th day, I turned myself in. Now, this is unusual for anybody. They didn't know how to deal with this kind of situation. Why would they not? So when I turned myself in at Fort Hamilton, I'm like, so where are we going to do with you? Where are we going to put you? We don't know what to do. So um, they sent me, they sent my mom home because they didn't want my mom seeing me in handcuffs. And they put me in handcuffs, put me in a car, and said they're taking me to Fort Dix in New Jersey. Since then, Fort Dix has been closed. Um, but at the time, I think they, that's where they had um, a lot of, um, what do you call it? Anybody, you know, like military criminals and stuff like that. So they used to take them out there. On the way going, <laughs> going to Dick's, we pass a Dairy Queen. And the guy say, oh, you want some ice cream? And I'm like, no, not really. You sure? You can go get some ice cream. I'm like, but I've got this on. Don't worry about it. I said, I'm not going into the Dairy Queen with handcuffs on. They said, we can leave you in the car. And go get I'm like, really? But anyway, I insisted. I didn't want any ice cream, and I decided it'll take me straight, so we didn't stop. When we get to Dick's now, um, again, they're like, this is not a serious crime. Why are we gonna why are we gonna lock her up? No, we don't want her. Somebody else is gonna have to deal with it. So now Dix doesn't want me. Fort Hamilton doesn't want me. So they call the command at Fort Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania, where I left. By this time my unit has left for Saudi Arabia. So that's when they realized that I was missing. Because they, all this time, because we weren't doing anything, nobody's really <laughs> taken account uh -huh. for what's going on. Only until they decided, okay, we're going to get deployed at this time, and they're taking count, head count. Then everybody realizes I'm missing. What's everybody, what's the rest of my roommate, my bunkmate's excuse for me being missing? Oh, I probably found some guy, and I was <laughs> shacking up with him, so nobody cared. <laughs> okay, so I ended up going back to Fort Indian Town Gap. Now I have a different um, company commander because my company commander is in Saudi Arabia now. And the company commander there really didn't like me from day one I came out. So, and then... I kept testing him too. And he realized that I was always a step ahead of him. Every time he came up with something, well, look, we're going to court-martial you. And I'm saying, well, before you court-martial me, um, I need to, according to Army regulations, I need to do this and that. I had a pro bono lawyer, um, legal lawyer thing um, at the time. Of, there was a group of lawyers that were actually helping military um, members to sign up for conscientious objection so I was able I actually had gotten one of those when I when I came to New York so it wasn't like I was I wasn't taking this stuff seriously and um, so I brought my lawyer out there and that kind of he didn't know how to deal with that because he was like this girl's too young to be so smart. 
we gotta find a way to get things. So he tried all these different things, and everything he came back, I counteracted. So he, after a while, he decided, this is probably like a month in now, he gave up and said, look, we have a hospital here that has a pharmacy that hasn't been taken care of in years. That's your that's your thing. How about taking it over? I said, great, I could do that. And I did it willingly. I was all of a sudden for the first time in a long time, the hospital's now getting a a steady flow of medications thing. I put in all these requisitions and I got the whole place cleared up and everything. But my company commander just couldn't give up. He just felt like, no, I was getting over on him and I wasn't going to win. So he had to find something else to, to get back at me with. So one day, out of the blue, two civilians come into to the back at, in the pharmacy where I was working and said there's an outbreak of scabies in my bay where we, you know, where we're all staying. And it seems as though I'm the source of it. Now, I don't even know what scabies was at the time, <laughs> but they kind of made it up on the spot. It was just something. But anyway, they said, oh, we have to get everybody out to the thing and fumigate. So you're going to have to pack up all your stuff tonight when you get, um, when you get back, pack up all your stuff and put in your duffel bag and put it outside so that it can fumigate and everything. So everybody in the entire bay had to do that. We went to breakfast. When I got back, everybody else's stuff was put back in their, in their room, except mine. And I'm like, where's my stuff? It's on a truck on its way to, to um, McGuire Air Force Base. They're sending me on a plane to Saudi Arabia. Oh my God. <laughs> no questions or anything. Uh -huh. That's how they got. So that's how I ended up going to Saudi Arabia. I had no. <laughs> what? <laughs> wow. So I was in between tears and laughter because I'm like, really? <laughs> this is how he gets back at me. <laughs> so, um. Yeah, so I, so I get on the plane with a bunch of strangers again, but, you know, it was one of these excavation units where it was mostly men. There was probably, I was one out of probably four women. Mm -hmm. And so all the guys kind of took care of me there because I guess they felt, well, okay, <laughs> this is fresh meat out here, so mm -hmm. we got our choice. But, um... They were pretty good, but at the same time, I couldn't stay with them because that's not my field. So they sent me out to the field hospital where my unit was, which was probably a good 20, 20 hour ride from, from um, Riyadh where, mm -hmm. and so it was, they, I went by helicopter, which so it took like six hours or so in the helicopter. And um, there was nothing to be seen for miles. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, splat, there's this field hospital, like you see a mash mm -hmm. with all these tents and stuff like that. And so they end up, I ended up going back to, 
to the unit that I was with, but by that time everybody had this animosity toward me because they had to come and I got away and they felt I was being unpatriotic and everything else. So I went through some hell with some people there, but I weathered that too. So, um, so I did my time out there, but because of, because of the AWOL, they decided that they had to court-martial me. And so they, so instead now I end up getting busted down back to the private, and then, um, and, but because again, being too smart for my own good, I had some, some other issues that I couldn't bring up, can't really think, that would really incriminate other people. So they just said, look, what we're gonna do? We're just gonna, we're just gonna um, take away your rank, and we're gonna let you go for the good of the service. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a, um, it wasn't a bad discharge. It was just a general discharge. But my record shows from before that I act, actually had exemplary record before that. So mm -hmm. a few years later, I get I get another certificate saying that. I got an honorable discharge, mm. so so that that was the the extent of my military career. Yeah, how did mm. you come to work at the library? Um, I was working as a consult well consultant doing nonprofit fund development at several different places, and at the time I was working at American Liver Foundation when nine eleven happened and we were smack in the, in the middle of Wall Street and they had brought me in to kind of get that corporate um, funding but the problem was because this happened everybody was in a slump so it really didn't think so they let me off and so in between jobs now I happened to come across um, an agency that said, well, they put me to work for as a social worker kind of thing, at for um, at the site where people were getting compensated for for damages and stuff due to 9/11. And after that, when we were closing down, I said, well, I really need another full-time job, and I wanted somewhere. Now I knew I wanted somewhere where I could call home. I just didn't want to keep bouncing around from place to place. So I said, if it's going to take me a while to get there, I'll hold out. But they kind of begged me and said, look, we have this assignment at Brooklyn Public Library. Do you mind doing it? And I'm like, I really would like to spend more time looking for something a little <laughs> bit more permanent uh -huh. rather than, well, it's only going to be three weeks. Just do this for three weeks and then we'll move. So... Well, I've spent enough time here, especially in the Central Library. I said, why not? You know, it'd be fun. Why not? So I came, and I met with the Director of Government Affairs, and um, he interviewed me, and he said, okay, great. So he said he was going away on conference. When he got back, he would make a decision. So when he got back from the conference, he called me and said, 
um, when can you start? And he told me to start that Monday, but he didn't come in himself because he ended up getting sick. So I started and he wasn't around. Found out that he was really, he really got ill. He ended, as a result, he ended up passing away. So, I was like, oh no. <laughs> but they asked me to stay, they, they asked me to stay anyway to kind of help with the transition. And my first order of business was to organize his memorial. Now, I don't even know the man, but I'm putting on a memorial for him. Uh, Norm's outside. That's why, I met, that's why I met Norm and a lot of these people. And and that's how I say, because the director who who the, who the was in charge of, that, um, of all the departments, because it was like external affairs, like what external affairs is now, uh, he saw my resume and he knew I had a background in special events and all this other stuff. So he said, "You're gonna put, let's put them all to use. So that's how I ended up coming to the library. And um, I was working, doing government affairs, plus I was working in volunteers because I've worked with volunteers before. I worked in the development office because yes, I was doing special events and um, and my part of the job was every time the library there was any closings at any of the branches and stuff and they, and they reopened, they would do a celebration. My job was to to put um, put together these celebrations and stuff. So I did that and then I did a little bit of marketing also. So it was like all these different all the the different departments I had to dabble in until they actually found another director. Because as much as I was doing government affairs stuff, I wasn't as proficient in it. But so afterwards then, I, um, they found another director and we, and we got along so well that we worked together for 12 years. To, so, so three weeks ended up being 12 years. Well, now, no, now it's almost 15 years. So you've been doing outreach for three-ish? Three, yeah. This is our third year. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what has been the most challenging part of your job at the library? Most challenging part, as I said, I worked in government affairs before, so the most challenging part was, especially it was a time where funding was really difficult to come by. And it was totally necessary since our jobs depended on um, getting substantial funding for, op for operational and capital needs. So um, it helps if the person actually knows you and you could kind of charm your way through there, but a lot of times, especially if it's somebody new, it takes a while to really for that person to warm up to you. And so sometimes it's a bit disheartening when you when you think, well, this may you know we've got this in the bag. We could get, actually get this, and then and then you find out afterwards that oh well, yes, we're gonna get twenty three million, and then 
we find out like oh no it's it's only going to be 12 million and and so you have to try to find new strategies to things so that was m the most disheartening part mm -hmm. trying to trying to keep and then morale will go down because nobody's getting raises and stuff like that so what's been your favorite part outreach services <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, the thing is, working in government, it was, it was, it was his own great experience. But um, after a while, it gets cyclical because you know the the calendar that from May to March, you you're going to spend how many days in Albany, walking up and down, just going through the motions of all of that, and then from after April through June it's the city it's a city side you're working on and you're spending hours standing in front of city hall and everything else and um, and there's a lot of work in it because um, you have to know every nook and cranny at the library every everywhere there's a crack at the library to tell each and every um, elected official of what's going on with their libraries what programs are going on in the library. So it's a lot of stuff, but with outreach services, it was like a ray of sunshine. It was like a, something new, you know. You, I came in and I can remember, I was going to Nick, like, really, why do you need me here? Um, I don't have a place in the sense, you know how the structure of the office is. You know, we have the three coordinators that deal with the three arms that we deal with. and. I'm just the second in command to him, but no responsibilities. So, he, well, I realized he was, you know, well into jail service. So there was no place for me there. Um, Eva is her own machine with immigration. And then older adults was at New Utrecht. So I didn't really know much about what was going on there. So. What I really loved is that now I am at a place where it's a new department and you can make new roles for yourself. So you develop new projects and that was reason coming up with stuff like the Herman's House project that we did last year, which I'm really proud of. And um, doing more things like that, where I could bring full circle of the work that we do, that we do and present it as a public awareness to everybody else of what we do and and how we could develop it. Brenda, is there anything that you have not gotten a chance to mention yet about your life, about Brooklyn, about your time at the library? I love Brooklyn. <laughs> what else can I say? I, you know, since I moved to Brooklyn, I've only been, I should say I've only been in Brooklyn, but I can't see myself being anywhere else right now, you know. I always said that maybe if I was married and had a bunch of children, I probably would move somewhere else, but this is, this is the place to be. Well, thank you. Okay.